the joy of sinless What you've heard is untrue. I am alive. I was not thrown into a Chinese gulag, nor did my plane disappear while crossing the Pacific. I've just been busy. Crushingly, overwhelmingly busy. Pro tip to all of you out there, don't move four times across two continents during the course of a single year. It is really tremendously time-consuming. But whatever. I am back. There is literature to be discussed. In this episode of The Joy of Serious Literature, we're going to discuss something that most people would think of as being entirely antithetical to literature. The celebrity profile. Can the form of journalism often regarded as being just about the lowest of the low? The article describing how Taylor Swift feels about her cat, published in Us Weekly? possibly ever stretch into that realm of the sublime that we call literature? Well, I'm here to tell you that it can, if you do it right. While I was living in China, I happened one day to stumble across inside a five-story tall bookshop a paperback copy of an anthology of the writing of a journalist named Gay Talese, who was popular in the 1960s as an interviewer of celebrities. Why on earth, I thought, would they have a copy of a book by Gay Talese here in China? Copies of Ulysses and Shakespeare plays? Sure, those are works of classic literature. But Gay Talese? But interviews with Joe Lewis and Frank Sinatra and Muhammad Ali? Who is Joe Lewis or Frank Sinatra to the Chinese? Why would they possibly care? I was so astounded by its existence, in fact, that I bought the book. I decided it would make, I thought, great light reading while I whiled away my dinner hour in one of the sleepy restaurants in my neighborhood. But what I discovered inside was not light reading at all. What I discovered were these essays that were so elegant, so perfectly crafted, so glimmering with piercing insight and haunting image, that they read like the finest of short stories, like the short stories of Hemingway or Flannery O'Connor, stories that made me feel what I previously felt was impossible, like I actually in some measure knew who these famous names were or at least who they were in a particular moment. Gaetalis was, as I said before, at the peak of his powers in the 1960s, and what set him apart, what allowed him to revolutionize the celebrity fluff piece, was the way he wouldn't just show up one afternoon and interview some celebrity for 20 minutes. What Talis would do, what he insisted on doing, was going and spending actual time with the subjects of his essays. Lots of time. Hours and hours. Days, even a week, noting everything they did and said, the shape of their faces, the creases of their clothes, examining them like a specimen under glass. His most famous essay, for example, and you've very possibly heard of it, is an essay entitled Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, which is about exactly that. It is about hanging out with Frank Sinatra and his entourage when, shortly before a crucial recording session for a TV special, the great Sinatra comes down with a cold. It's the most trivial thing in the world. Sinatra has the sniffles and a sore throat. And yet in depicting how Sinatra and those around him handle this crisis, he's able to evoke the fullest and most powerful depiction of who Sinatra was as an artist, as a figure in American life, as a man. And he does this not by blanketing us with information about Sinatra, the way, let's say, a biographer would, teaching us a long list of lifeless Sinatra facts, but by striving to evoke for us the essence of Sinatra, the very experience of being in his presence. 
Quote, Frank Sinatra, holding a shot glass of bourbon in his left hand, walked through the crowd. He, unlike some of his friends, was perfectly pressed, his tuxedo tie precisely pointed, his shoes unsmudged. He never seems to lose his dignity, never lets his guard completely down, no matter how much he is drunk, nor how long he has been up. He never sways when he walks, like Dean Martin nor does he ever dance in the aisles or jump up on tables like Sammy Davis. A part of Sinatra, no matter where he is, is never there. There is always a part of him, though sometimes a small part, There remains il padron. Even now, resting his shot glass on the blackjack table, facing the dealer, Sinatra stood a bit back from the table, not leaning against it. He reached under his tuxedo jacket into his trouser pocket, and came up with a thick but clean wad of bills. Gently he peeled off a hundred-dollar bill and placed it on the green felt table. The dealer dealt him two cards. Sinatra called for a third. Overbid. Lost the hundred. Without a change of expression, Sinatra put down a second hundred-dollar bill. He lost that. Then he put down a third and lost that. He placed down two hundred-dollar bills on the table and lost those. Finally, putting a $600 bill on the table and losing it, Sinatra moved away from the table, nodding to the man and announcing, Good dealer. The crowd that had gathered around him opened up to let him through, but a woman stepped in front of him, handing him a piece of paper to autograph. He signed it, and then he said, Thank you. It is from passages like the one I just read that every celebrity profile you've ever read where there's long passages describing Lena Dunham eating expensive french fries, or where the author gets drunk with Johnny Depp and Johnny Depp's lawyer in a London dungeon, has its point of origin. What they're imitating, often laughably poorly, is the writing of Gay Talese. He is the beginning of all of that. He is the beginning of the new journalism, as applied to the famous. The more I think about it, the more the sentences of Talese remind me of Raymond Carver, They're so clean and crisp, so easy to read, so vivid and clear in the images they craft. And like Carver, he's able to hang on those sentences, moments, and scenes that shine out from the page. Like when I first started reading Talese, I was reminded of one of my favorite Raymond Carver stories, which is about a very obese man binge eating pancakes in a diner while telling the waitress again and again that he doesn't normally eat like this. It's the most mundane of things, a fat guy eating pancakes. The language is spare, no flourishes, no Joycean or Nabokovian prose heroics, and yet the story is flooded with sadness and loneliness and with the slow suicide of eating. So much in so little, a whole life presented and then skinned alive in a few pages, in a few sentences, in a single action. And yet while Carver's characters are fictional, people he's just invented for the page, to leases are real people, and not just any people, famous people, people about whom millions of words of prose have already been written before Talese dared to write a single word. And this, I think, is crucial to think about in relation to Talese's work. Raymond Carver has to make you interested in his fake human beings. He has to make you give a damn about Pancake God. That requires a great deal of work. But the thing that Talese seems to play off of in almost all of his best essays is the fact that the people he's describing are already interesting. 
You already care about everything Frank Sinatra does because he's Frank Sinatra. You care about everything Joe Lewis does because he's Joe Lewis. Even in a bad essay about someone as legendary as Joe Lewis is still going to be at least somewhat interesting. But what Talese is able to do is take that natural interest, that pre-existing obsession with these figures, and use it to make us focus in on the utter minutia of those figures, onto the single moments. Sinatra playing blackjack, Joe Lewis getting scolded by his wife, He shouts at us, don't just be interested in Sinatra. Don't just learn about Sinatra. Don't just listen to Sinatra talk about whatever it is that Sinatra is talking about. But look at Sinatra. Really look at him. He uses, in a certain measure, a technique that I saw used once in a film. There is this Hungarian movie I like called Satan Tango. It's the artsiest, fartsiest thing you can imagine. It's six hours long. It's black and white. The first shot is 10 minutes of cows walking around a farm. But there is this one scene in that movie that I love beyond all rationality that offers us, I think, a great metaphor for how Talese's writing works on the mind of its reader. In the scene in question, the camera opens on a still shot of complete darkness, and then it stays on that darkness. But then the darkness starts to lighten, And you realize that what you're looking at is a room as the sun rises and light begins to trickle into it little by little. And the camera just stays there, fixed, watching the light slowly grow. This goes on for minutes and minutes, five minutes, six minutes, eight minutes, where all you have to look at is this washroom with a sink and tiles and a fallen broom. And yet it forces you to look at that growing light for so long so intensely, so searchingly, because there's absolutely nothing else to look at, that you start to find things in it. The edge of the wall, the shadow of a broom, a glisten on a broken floor tile. And as your gaze deepens, what you're watching ceases to be just the light coming into this dingy room. But the image transforms itself in your mind until you feel as if you're watching the very first light to ever shine upon the face of the earth like you're witnessing the birth of creation itself in that awful, dirty, disintegrating room. And this, this is what Talese does, but with words. He makes you focus so intently on the minutiae of these people, on their hand gestures, their facial expressions, the words they use to brush off a question they don't want to answer, that these most minute of things also begin to explode with profundity, And you begin to see, suddenly, the entirety of the whole of who these people are. Let us look at a passage from an essay Talese published in 1996 about accompanying Muhammad Ali, now old and slowly succumbing to Parkinson's disease, on a trip to Cuba to meet Fidel Castro. Bradley's voice is suddenly overwhelmed by the sounds of laughter and hand clapping. Bradley and Castro turn to discover that Muhammad Ali is now reclaiming everyone's attention. He is holding his shaky left fist in the air, but instead of assuming a boxer's pose as he did earlier, he is beginning to pull out from the top of his upraised fist slowly and with dramatic delicacy the red tip of a silk handkerchief that is pinched between his right index finger and thumb. After he pulls out the entire handkerchief, he dangles it in the air for a few seconds, waving it closer and closer to the forehead 
of the wide-eyed Fidel Castro. Ali seems bewitched. He continues to stare stagnantly at Castro and the others, surrounded by applause that he gives no indication he hears. Then he proceeds to place the handkerchief back into the top of his cupped left hand, packing with the pinched fingers of his right, and reveals that the handkerchief has disappeared. Where is it? cries Castro, who seems to be genuinely surprised and delighted. He approaches Ali and examines his hands, repeating, Where is it? Where have you put it? In that one scene, which continues on to include Ali teaching Fidel Castro how to replicate his trick, you find yourself realizing, just because of this one moment, that Muhammad Ali and Fidel Castro are in the same line of work. They're both performers. They're both people whose life, whose power, whose strength depends upon their ability to hold others transfixed. Hold an audience of a few, of thousands, of millions, as the cliche goes, in the palm of their hands. If they cannot hold their audience transfixed, they're nothing. Frank Sinatra has a cold, as I said before, is Gay Talese's most famous essay. But my favorite of all of his essays is actually an essay called The Loser, about this boxer named Floyd Patterson. Now this piece stands out in stark contrast to most of his other best work, in that no one remembers Floyd Patterson. Even my old man, who remembers every athlete who's ever walked the face of the earth, had to think for a minute to remember anything about Floyd Patterson. Floyd Patterson had two stints as the heavyweight champion of the world in the late 1950s and early 1960s. But what he was most famous for in his time was not his victories, but his defeats. Namely, the two times he got his ass kicked by Sonny Liston, a boxer a great many people remember, a boxer who has been immortalized in at least 20 jazz songs. The first fight was in September 1962, when Liston challenged Patterson's title as champion. Hyped as one of the fights of the century, tens of thousands of people poured into Comiskey Park in Chicago to see Liston, the underdog, knocked Patterson out in the first round, after only two minutes and six seconds. Then, in April 1963, they fought again in Las Vegas. This time it was going to be the rematch of the century. Patterson had been training night and day, preparing for revenge. And not only was he going to have his chance at revenge, everyone in the country was rooting for him to seize that chance, to crush Liston. Both Liston and Patterson were black men. But Liston was seen by many Americans, by the American media, as, and we're going to touch on some racism right here, a sort of ignorant black criminal animal. He discovered boxing while in prison for mugging. He was constantly getting arrested. He was deeply intertwined with the mob. He was a villain. While in contrast, Patterson, even though he came from poverty like Liston, and had as a youth a penchant for theft like Liston, was a much more likable figure. He was extremely well-spoken. He was a family man and devout Catholic. He sent his children to private school with rich white children. He was the embodiment of what a black man could be, and in the minds of many people, particularly white people, should be. But Liston beat him again. Again by knockout. Again in the first round. This time after two minutes and ten seconds. He gained four seconds. Patterson was humiliated. A laughing stop. And it's in the thick of this disgrace that Gay Talese travels to the abandoned country club in upstate New York, where Patterson has gone into hiding, hiding from the media, from the public, 
hiding even from his own wife and kids. At this time of morning, Talese writes, farm trucks are on the road, and the drivers wave at the runner. And later in the morning, other motorists see him, and a few stop suddenly at the curb and ask, Say, aren't you Floyd Patterson? No, says Floyd Patterson. I'm his brother Raymond. The motorists move on, but recently a man on foot, a disheveled man who seemed to have spent the night outdoors, staggered behind the runner along the road and yelled, Hey, Floyd Patterson! No, I'm his brother Raymond. Don't tell me you're not Floyd Patterson. I know what Floyd Patterson looks like. Okay, Patterson said, shrugging. If you want me to be Floyd Patterson, I'll be Floyd Patterson. So let me have your autograph, said the man, handing him a rumpled piece of paper and pencil. He signed it, Raymond Patterson. Like any story, what drives Talese's essays is that they have plots. The plots are simple, Sinatra trying to overcome his cold but they're always there, rising, climaxing, falling. Here the crisis at hand for Patterson is that his daughter is being bullied at her elementary school by some white boys, and so Patterson has concocted this idea that he's going to fly down to the ritzy suburb where his family lives, largely without him, and use his size and strength to intimidate a bunch of fourth graders. Structurally, The Loser is as close as Talese ever came to writing a normal interview a piece of writing where the voice of the subject holds primacy. Because Floyd Patterson, as I hinted before, turns out to be a shockingly articulate and thoughtful human being. You don't really think of, or at least I don't really think of, people who get punched in the face for a living as being people who engage in a lot of sophisticated contemplation of their existence. But Patterson clearly does. And Talese's genius in writing this essay is that he recognizes this, that Patterson himself is fascinating, and that he doesn't need to be adorned with dramatic language the same way that Sinatra blowing his nose has to be adorned. There are whole pages where Talese just shuts up and lets Patterson talk because he recognizes there's no way he could possibly describe the experience of losing, of losing on the big stage in front of the entire world, any better than the man who has lived this experience. And I kept thinking, Patterson says, as I flew out of Vegas that night, of all those months of training before the flight, all the road work, all the sparring, all the months away from Sandra, thinking of all the time in camp when I wanted to stay up until 11.15 p.m. to watch a certain movie on The Late Show. But I didn't, because I had road work the next morning. How could the same thing happen twice? How? That's all I kept thinking after the knockout. Was I fooling all these people all these years? Was I ever the champion? And then they lead you out of the ring, and up the aisle you go, past the people, and all you want to do is get to your dressing room, fast. But the trouble was, in Las Vegas, they made a wrong turn along the aisle, and when we got to the end, there was no dressing room there, and we had to walk all the way back down the aisle, past the same people, and they must have been thinking, Patterson's not only knocked out, but he can't even find his dressing room. In the dressing room, I had a headache. Liston didn't hurt me physically. A few days later, I only felt a twitching nerve in my teeth. It was nothing like some fights I've had, like the Dick Wagner fight in 53, when he beat my body so bad I was urinating blood for days. After the Liston fight, I just went into the bathroom, shut the door behind me, looked at myself in the mirror. 
I just looked at myself and asked, what happened? And then they started pounding on the door, saying, come on out, Floyd, come on out. The press is here, Cuss is here, come on out, Floyd. And so I went out, and they asked questions. But what can you say? What you're thinking about is all those months of training, all the conditioning, all the depriving, and you think, I didn't have to run that extra mile, didn't have to spar that day. I could have stayed up that night in camp and watched the late show. I could have fought this fight in no condition. As someone who has suffered some serious defeats in their life, a few spectacular failures, It's remarkable how beautiful Patterson nails it. The essence of the feeling of defeat is that feeling that everything you've done, all your efforts, all your devotion has come to nothing. It's been futile. You've wasted your life. You could have been so much happier or better off had you done something else, had you never tried. You could have watched The Late Show. You could have enjoyed being alive. But now all of that is gone and you've gained nothing for your sacrifice. Or, there's this other passage that I love, where Patterson confesses that he brings a false mustache and glasses to every fight, so that if he loses, he can escape out the back door without being recognized, and then tries to explain to Talese why he does this. You must wonder, he says, what makes a man do things like this? Well, I wonder too. And the answer is, I don't know. But I think within me, within every human being, there is a certain weakness. It is a weakness that exposes itself more when you're alone. And I have figured out that part of the reason I do the things I do, and cannot seem to conquer that one word, myself, is because, is because I'm a coward. He stopped. He stood very still in the middle of the room, thinking about what he had just said, probably wondering whether he should have said it. I am a coward, he then repeated, softly. You see it when a fighter loses. Ingemar, for instance, is not a coward. When he lost the third fight in Miami, he was at a party later at the Fontainebleau. Had I lost, I couldn't have gone to that party. And I don't see how he did. Could Sonny Liston be a coward? That remains to be seen, Patterson said. We'll find out what he's like after somebody beats him, how he takes it. It's easy to do anything in victory. It's in defeat that a man reveals himself. In defeat, I can't face people. I haven't the strength to say to people, I did my best. I'm sorry. It's easy to do anything in victory. It's in defeat that a man reveals himself. If I told you that was said by Napoleon, you would believe me. Here is a truly remarkable man. What Talese has found, in the most unlikely of places, is a man with something truly illuminating to say about the experience of being alive. At one point he's asked, do you do much reading? No, Patterson replies. In fact, you know I've never finished reading a book in my whole life. I don't know why. I just feel that no writer today has anything for me. I mean, none of them has felt any more deeply than I have, and I have nothing to learn from them. And while you're reading Patterson talk to Talese, while you're reading him march up on that fancy private school, get befuddled, and completely fail to intimidate the kids who are harassing his daughter, when you're sitting with him and his wife and Talese back in the car afterwards, and he says, what could I do with those schoolboys? What can you do with kids that age? 
as if he knew that had his daughter been Sonny Liston's daughter, the elementary school playground would have been littered with the severed limbs of schoolboys. You think he might actually be right. Maybe no one has ever felt more deeply than Floyd Patterson. To have felt what it is to have the entire world on his shoulders, and then to drop the world on its face in a puddle. To be defeated, to be not only a loser, but the loser. The way that literature works, or at least what we normally think of as literature, fiction, poetry, works is by holding up a mirror to reality so that we might be able to see the truth of our reality reflected in that mirror. It defamiliarizes our reality, and in doing so allows us to come closer to seeing the truth of some small fragment of our collective or individual existence. But the sort of literature embodied by Talese's essays can't work that same way. They're journalism, ultimately. They're shackled to the verifiable truth, to depicting things that all of us could see if only we were to look. Frank Sinatra playing blackjack would have appeared exactly the same to us as it did to Talese. But what Talese knows how to do is to curate that reality. He is able in the vast wasteland of Frank Sinatra-related information or the undoubtedly endless streams of words Floyd Patterson must have hurled at Talese while banging on his punching bag to find what among all that detritus is beautiful or powerful or tragic or profound. He is not a mirror in which we see reality, but a filter through which we see reality, the machine that filters out everything that might distract us from the truth so that we can see reality raw and unadorned, glaring back at us. There are limitations, though, to this kind of writing. It can only ever be as good as its filter. That which is a great filter for coffee is rarely a great filter in your air purifier. Women are beyond Talese. He's able to offer up these microscopic examinations of masculinity, of physical strength in decline, manhood in decline. But whenever he turns his pen to women, it loses its sharpness almost instantaneously. What brilliance there exists in his depictions of their actions or thoughts only exists in relationship to the men at the center of his story in relation to Joe Lewis or Castro or Muhammad Ali. Even when he writes, as he does in his essay Vogelad, almost entirely about women interacting with one another, you feel as if you gain a marvelously full evocation of their actions, their styles, their stares, their conflicts, but you never actually learn anything about why they do those things or have those conflicts. They remain inscrutable to us as a reader, because it seems they are inscrutable to our writer. He ends up again and again, falling back on clumsy speculations about their sexuality or blanket pronouncements of their possessiveness. This is a serious shortcoming, and really a disappointment, because when you read his essays, you find yourself begging for a better understanding of what's happening inside the mind of Muhammad Ali's wife or Joe Lewis's wife or the Cuban boxer Teofilo Stevenson's lawyer wife, when Castro makes a joke in front of her about her husband's penchant for infidelity. The awkwardness of the moment is fully evoked, the lunacy, the tyranny, but not her perspective, not her feelings. And that isn't good enough. There is something massively important there, inside her, in that moment, and Talese just leaves it on the table. But what can you do, I suppose? Not every artist can be brilliant in all things. J.M.W. Turner could paint a glorious boat and a glorious sunset, but he could not paint people. 
Gaitalis can open up these male celebrities for our dissection, for us to see ourselves, for us to understand them in a way we would have previously thought impossible to understand them. That is a thing of immense value, an immense accomplishment as both a journalist and a writer. It is an imperfect picture, but it is still a marvelous picture, a portrait like the portraits of Holbein or Caravaggio, a portrait in words that, when given the right subject, the masculine subject, the boxer, the padron, the despot, sees through that subject completely, sees their bones, sees their twisted, contradictory, convoluted, corrupted, incandescent souls. Thank you. This has been The Joy of Serious Literature. As ever, I have been your host, Brian Davis. If you'd like to read more of Talisa's writing, the best place to begin would be the anthology I read, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold and Other Essays, which is available as a Penguin classic. There's also a really great episode of This American Life, where I believe Talise himself reads passages from Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. I'll make sure there's a link in the episode description. I hope you are all well. I hope you all miss me dearly. There'll be another episode in something less than a million years and it will most likely be about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and what I like to call the call of evil. I hope you'll be there. Godspeed.